Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special post-election day uh, podcast of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and the reason I can barely speak is that I got 90 minutes of sleep last night. Uh, But... Uh, much better rested and uh, better commentators on this kind of thing. Anyway, we have joining us today, David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. Did hey, you sleep? how are you, David? Did you sleep last night? I did. You know, I went to sleep around midnight, figuring that we weren't going to actually see many states that we cared about called until the morning. Very smart. So, so I missed the president's rant from the East Room, but yeah. I caught up with it this morning. Yeah. I, unfortunately, <laughs> I, di- I didn't. Also joining us, uh, well-rested, uh, Max Boot of the Washington Post. How are you, Max? I'm good. Like David Singer, I also went to bed around midnight, so uh, I didn't stay up all night getting, uh, uh, you know, working myself up over uh, the president's assault on our democracy. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I was infected a little bit by my mother's disorder which she couldn't sleep on an airplane because she felt that she had to stay awake in order to keep it aloft mm. you know, i think I, I think i had to i felt like i had to stay awake to keep things moving in the right direction uh, we'll also be joined uh, shortly by Corey shockey but uh, because we have a limited amount of time here we've got a special podcast with two halves this is the first half and then another group of guests is going to join us for the second half um uh, we thought we would sort of do kind of lightning round takes on these things. And and let me start with you, David. Sure. What's your, what's, what's, what's your take on what happened last night? Uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, the broad uh, look at it, which is the big blue wave that so many, um, uh, particularly in the Twitter uh, world, maybe even the deep state world and all that thought was coming didn't happen. I mean, when in the end, uh, if Joe Biden pulls this out, which as of this broadcast, it looks right now, you know, likely that he would get to 270, um, he would be um, governing with, you know, barely a majority of the country, which means that all the things we've been discussing for the past three or four years here, the mishandling of the uh, COVID-19 crisis, uh, the dismantlement of American alliances, the retreat to our borders. A good half the country thinks, you know, having seen uh, Donald Trump in action for four years, that that's okay, which I'm not sure, you know, many of us living on the coast would have thought possible. He did better among Hispanics. He did a little bit better among women than we had expected uh, that he would do. Um, and if Biden ends up winning, he will be winning with, you know, a bare majority, which I think will, will hurt him some. Um, we've learned that polling in Florida remains as bad as it will, always was. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have, you know, this time the pollsters, uh, all that said, okay, we learned from 2016, we got it. Uh, I suspect that we're going to come out of this thinking, nah, they don't quite have it yet. Um, and I guess the last point uh, I would make uh, out of this is that um, as the nation thinks about its divisions about direction, I'm not sure that we're going to look back and say that this was a decisive change of direction election, that uh, it's essentially going to look a lot like 2016, even if the outcome this time is the Democratic candidate instead of the Republican. We're still going to say the country remains fundamentally divided. Um, Good, good insights. I see that Corey has joined us here. Hi, Corey. How are you? 
I am well, my friends. I apologize for screeching in a couple minutes late. No problem. I'm going to go to Max with a question. You're going to get the same question in about two minutes because that'll be his the length of his answer. But then, you know, we'll go around and around. Uh, Max, what's, what's your well-rested take on all this? Well, my take is that it's not as good as I had hoped, not as bad as I had feared. Uh, Trump may well lose, and that's a significant development given how awful he has been as president over the past four years and and how destructive he would be if he got another four years. But it's pretty clear that Trumpism was not repudiated. And that's, that's disheartening to me because, uh, you know, seeing all of uh, Trump's enablers, uh, not all of them, but most of his enablers survive, even the ones in Senate races where they were expected to lose, uh, there was not a massive blue wave, as David said, against uh, the Republicans. And Trump himself was in a position where he was on the verge of, of winning last night, and, and there's still a small chance that he could pull it out, which to, to my mind is just mind-boggling and, and disheartening given how awful a president he has been, how he has presided over uh, catastrophes, the likes of which we have not seen in a century. I mean, he's also gotten himself impeached, attacked our democracy. He's probably going to be judged one of the worst presidents in our history, if not the absolute worst. And despite all that, something like 48% of the country and something like 66 plus million people or more thought that he deserves another four years. To my mind, that is a very damning and disturbing indictment of many of our fellow Americans. Yeah, so Corey, the good news is um, Joe Biden is going to probably get more votes than any candidate in our history. Uh, the the not so good news is is that it looks like Donald Trump is going to get the second most votes <laughs> of anybody in our history. So what's, that what's, just tells us that our population is increasing. I don't think that's a particularly relevant metric, um, but I do think. Um, I think a couple of things. First, that um, it is genuinely shocking to me that even leaving out the governance issues, the attempts to undercut constitutional um, norms and statutory legalities that President Trump has done so well, but what actually surprises me even more, because those first basket of things are things that people who pay attention to politics care about, and that's all of us, but that's not most Americans. Um, the thing that really shocks me is that with a quarter million Americans dead from COVID and the president's mismanagement of it, that that didn't weigh more heavily in voters' reactions. I would, however, point out two other things. One is that I think I at least was anticipating a broader repudiation of the president. And the fact that it didn't occur means that uh, he's speaking to things people care about for their own lives. And my fellow Republicans and I need to find a way to separate. Um, Trump from policies that are going to address the concerns that people are voting on. And the second thing I would say is to remember that we're in the middle of a maelstrom of the communications revolution where, um, you know, mainstream media can't keep away from reporting breathlessly on the president's behavior and giving lots of unearned media to him for it. And social media is probably the best indicator of how people voted and where most people are actually getting their information. And so finding ways to prevent the siloing of where information get their media, I think is an interesting social and an interesting regulatory challenge that has huge electoral consequences. So David, you're in the business of getting information from reliable sources. And all of us try to do that. And we spent the couple of weeks prior to this election, you know, reading polls, reading takes, reading insights, listening to experts. And I, I think it's pretty fair to say, although, you know, 
the Twitterverse today was full of people speaking with absolute certainty about everything. That for the two weeks prior to the election, I didn't see one single person who predicted this. I, you know, I mean, it just came. The 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 margins were all beyond the margin of errors of these polls. Right. Um, the, the the some of the polls were egregiously crazy. You know, Wisconsin. You know, Biden win. You know, when one poll he was seventeen points out. It was crazy, but. You know, how do you get there? How do you get the entire, you know, knowledgeable universe completely wrong? It's a good question. This is the reason that, you know, the only person I trust when I talk to them is Corey, right? Everybody yeah. else, I just sort of, I, I scratch, scratch out the quotes. As well, they, she's uh, part of the deep state. Oh, well, that's you know, true. That's true. <laughs> um, but, you know, she spent much of the Trump administration in Britain. So she, you know, <laughs> she, was, she was in exile. She was in exile. <laughs> I think that was her own description of it. But anyway, yeah. um, so, um, well, I alluded to this when I said that uh, in the polling world, we need to like tear all this down and build it back up again, because clearly for many of these polls, we just don't understand what we're doing. I mean, he, you know, Florida, he was supposed to be slightly ahead. Obviously he lost by some significant, uh, Biden was supposed to be slightly ahead and he lost by some significant margin. Uh, as you say, the Wisconsin numbers were crazy. Uh, there's going to be a recount in Wisconsin. I suspect that Biden will survive that, but we're talking about what a 20,000 vote margin. Um, so it suggests a couple of things. One, they're real, Biden uh, over-relied on polls. The Trump folks either didn't weren't, weren't honest with pollsters or the pollsters weren't getting to the right people. But the whole model needs to be torn up. We've had two elections in a row where that hasn't worked. Um, I thought that Max got it just right when he said that uh, even if Trump is defeated, Trumpism is not. And these numbers suggest to you that uh, after four years of a Biden administration, if Biden ultimately prevails uh, in this, you could easily see this coming back, uh, you know, with a Trump-like figure, even if it's not Trump himself, because this is so much the dynamic of the electorate. And if that's the case, you have to ask the questions, the question, why would you try to convince your allies that we're back to a world of internationalism. They may say there's gonna be a four year interlude where you rejoin the um, climate accord and you rejoin the Iran deal and so forth, but this could all be upended again in four years to which our only answer is, well, that's our system. Um, but I think to allies and to adversaries, they will recognize that even if Donald Trump doesn't come back into office, somebody who appeals to that base, which as Corey said, we're not listening to well enough, um, could well be there. So Max, is it Trumpism or is it McConnellism? You know, McConnell sort of was in a similar position at the end of the Obama administration, right? He controlled the Senate majority. He stopped judicial nominees from going through. Um, and, um, you know, Trump comes and goes, but his majority stays and people who everybody thought were, you know, doomed, you know, like, uh, Susan Collins of Maine or, or, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, or Joni Ernst, you know, they're, they're still there. And what's worse, you know, on the sort of the hard right of the Republican party in the house, we've now had the arrival of one woman who has a self avowed QAnon follower, another guy who liked to send pictures of his dream coming true by visiting Hitler's mountaintop retreat. Um, there's, you know, what's going on in the Congress is, is, is the a disturbing story here, right? Quite apart from Trump or, or, or Biden. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's, it's especially disturbing to somebody like me as a, as a former Republican, I urged everybody to vote straight ticket Democratic this year because I felt it was imperative to punish the Republican Party for the way they had backed Trump as he assaulted our Constitution and spread the poison of 
nativism and racism. I thought that had to be purged from the party before we had a sane center-right party. And pretty obviously the purge has not occurred. In fact, some of Trump's biggest sycophants, and I'm thinking about you, Lindsay, uh, have actually been reelected. And so they will continue down that same path. And as you mentioned, there are new members of, of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, uh, who are even crazier than the ones who are already there. I mean, you actually have this uh, QAnon believer who's going to be part of the House Republican caucus. So for those of us who are hoping that uh, that you know, being hit with a two by four would shock the Republican Party into some sanity. That that clearly has not happened. The Republican Party is going to careen down the same path they're on now of populism, white nationalism, and irrationalism. And and you know, for those of us who think that we need a responsible, sober, and sane center right party in this country, that is a very depressing prospect. That is, you know, very bad news uh, for our future. Um, and obviously it leaves Mitch McConnell in a very strong place in the Senate to frustrate uh, whatever agenda President-elect Biden, assuming he is president-elect, uh, would try to put forward. And we've seen that, you know, while McConnell is, is certainly not as crazy as Trump, he doesn't espouse these lunatic conspiracy theories, he is in some ways, uh, you know, even more pernicious because he is more effective and he shows no respect for precedent or rules or anything like that. Uh, he, he just wants to ram his agenda through uh, when he can or to frustrate Democratic presidents when they try to get something done. And so, you know, I think that's it's 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 not good news. And but, you know, it would obviously be a lot worse if if Trump were to actually win and and to continue. But unfortunately, I think even if he loses narrowly, he is still going to continue his cult of personality out of office and he will still exert undue influence on the Republican Party. And you can imagine you know, challengers in 2024 coming down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss Trump's ring if he himself doesn't run, which is unfortunately a possibility as well. He'll certainly talk about running, whether he does or not, just to stay within the conversation. And by the way, that may well keep him as sort of the leader of the party. It may keep others from emerging because he's going to have the biggest microphone. Wow. Um, so, Corey, David and, and Max very sensibly went to sleep last night around midnight. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm just going to guess that you did as well. Um, uh, Corey goes to bed, she tells me, at 8.30 every night. Well, she's, she's, you know, fit. That's right. When the sun goes down, um, the lack of electricity here in my 19th century paradise uh, requires me to light a candle, but to save some tallow for future days, David. Uh, well, that's, that's, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're keeping lit the candle of civilization. The light uh, of all of us. I was, I was counting on, 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 on that and, and the daily deliveries of whale oil that you were getting. But um, <laughs> uh, in the middle of the night when I woke up because I, I happened to check my phone and it said, oh, Trump's giving a press conference. And, you know, what I saw, and it was a little colored by waking up at 2.30 in the morning, but what I saw was the president of the United States essentially attempting to launch a coup. Essentially, what he said was, I don't want to count any more votes. I don't trust the votes that have come in. We're going to bring this to the Supreme Court. By the way, you know, wink, nod. There's, you know, the Supreme Court is rigged in my favor. Um, and, you know, all the things that people had sort of worried he said he said he might do for a couple of weeks, he said he was going to do. And whether it works out or not, no American president has ever done this. And, you know, because it happened in the middle of the night and by the time the morning rolled around, people were saying, oh, Biden might win. And that became the story. It may not have gotten the attention that I think it deserves, but maybe maybe I'm just hypersensitive. Do you think it deserves a lot of attention that the president essentially attempted a coup? Yes, David, you are exactly right. Um, it's an enormous danger. And not only in our current fraught instance, but also in terms of normalizing the belief that uh, every vote doesn't have to be counted in this country and that we don't have transparent, replicable vote counts. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's hugely dangerous. 
you know what was really wonderful? Um, that, uh, you know, he's out there leading a parade. It doesn't look like people are following him on. When you have, when you launch a coup from the right and you can't get Ben Shapiro to join the parade, um, that's a good day for democracy in America. And more sensible mainstream voices like Marco Rubio also uh, came out and said, that's not how we do things in the United States. Every vote deserves to be counted. And state secretaries general are the people who determine who won the election. And uh, as, as damaging and dangerous of what the president's attempting to do is, I a little bit wonder whether we, it might not end up advantageous by making so clear his disrespect for the rule of law and requiring others to be for or against it. And I, I, I genuinely believe it will be a bridge too far for, for almost everybody. And so it may end up being a parallel to the mistakes that General Milley, for example, made in Lafayette Square last summer, which were bad in and of themselves, but ended up strengthening the broad lines of civil military norms in the United States. And just to follow up on, on Corey's point, I will say something I've never said before, which is to offer a word of praise for Fox News, which I generally believe is one of the most maligned forces in American life today. But I think they've actually been, on the whole, pretty responsible in the last day or so. They have not echoed Trump's claims that he, quote unquote, won. They called Arizona pretty early uh, for Biden. And this is the decision desk people. This is the news people at, at, at Fox, Brett Baer and others. I think they've actually been been pretty restrained and pretty responsible. Now, of course, that's all going to end as soon as, you know, the Tucker Carlson's and Hannity's get on the air. But overall, in the last 24 hours, Fox has, you know, has has helped our democracy, which is not something I ever expected to say. Well, pretty early backs. I mean, they called Arizona last night. If you go on the New York Times website, the Times still has not called Arizona for uh, Biden. And in fact, I think the president's made uh some some gains out there ap i think has has called it for them but they were out early and they challenged the president's statements right away um so you know the the internal war within fox which is evident from the president's own lashing out at fox news uh you know has been been pretty evident out here which does make you think that if the president ends up uh, leaving office um, uh, involuntarily, uh, that probably the first thing he would do would be find an outlet, probably not Fox, that becomes identified completely with him, an OAN kind of outlet that would get give him a moment to sort of rebuild that Fox constituency. Yeah, no, he could, you know, you, you, you bring up an interesting point. He could sort of reenact that great Korean movie, Parasite. And, you know, that <laughs> Trump could sort of go into the basement of the White House. <laughs> you know, and just find a, find a way to live. Well played, David. You know? If you watch the end of the movie, though, it doesn't, it wouldn't work out well for him. No, it for, doesn't. For, it doesn't. For, all you, for all you know, he could be calling into Deep State Radio. Yeah, well, yeah, right. That'll 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 be the day. Well, no, no, there was a moment there, you know, Corey and 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 Max, you're absolutely right. Um, the Republican Party, for all our talk earlier about Trump being the leader, for once seemed to show a little bit of spine. And and as as Corey says, you know, Ben Shapiro. Um, but you know, we also had Chris Christie speak out against it. We also had Rick Santorum speaking out for the dumbest box of rocks constituency that CNN seems to have him there representing. Um, in fact, you know, nobody was defending him. And even today, when he said he was going to do a recount in Wisconsin, um, the former GOP governor of Wisconsin uh, said, uh, no, that's not going to work. So, I mean, some, something's going on there. I think, I think that a message is, is being sent. Uh, we've only got four minutes here because of the 
structure of this episode. So I'd like to go to each of you, give you a minute and talk about the part of the election that you think is under covered, David. Um, well, I think because we're so focused on the horse race, the hard question is going to be if Biden emerges with 270, or maybe he'd even do better if he won Pennsylvania and so forth. What's the margin that he needs in order to not merely take the office and survive the court challenges and other efforts by President Trump to, uh, to reverse the result, but actually to have something of a mandate to govern? And as we've already discussed, with the Republicans holding the Senate, uh, it's going to be very hard for him. It's going to be, you know, it would be Biden negotiating with Mitch McConnell. It doesn't seem like that's going to be a, a, a profitable run for him. The Democrats did not make very much progress uh, on, in the, on the side of the House. So um, there's a question of can you get elected? And then there's a question of how much of the Trump era can you undo? And that that will probably be grist for many a future episode for us. Okay, two minutes left, Max, one minute. Uh, well, I'd just like to see more explanation of how this happened and how this election differed from 2018, uh, what the dynamics were then, what the dynamics are now, and uh, you know which parts of the Trump campaign were the most effective. I mean, it all seemed like, like a horror show to me with nonstop lies and uh, coronavirus spreading rallies and all the rest of it, but clearly, something in his message resonated, including in places like South Florida with the Cuban American community and to an extent that people didn't anticipate. So I would be just curious what part of it was was Trump and what part of it was kind of a generic uh, Republican message. So I think there's a lot of dissections still to come to figure out what happened and why. Corey. Uh, the amount of ticket splitting that went on even in so polarized and febrile an election. I think uh, we're overlooking the fact that Americans, uh, many Americans favor divided government and actually want to broad-based answers to the problems that the country faces. Well, those are all good analyses. We're gonna um, uh, uh, be, uh, treated to a whole other set on the second half of this program. But before we get to that, I'd like to thank you, uh, Corey. I'd like to thank you, David. I'd like to thank you, Max, for uh, joining us here for this special episode. And of course, uh, look forward to talking to all of you again very soon. Uh, in the meantime, um, please catch up on my sleep for me. Um, <laughs> we'll take a nap for you, David. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you. Um, all right. Talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye, my friends. Bye. Bye-bye. Hi, and welcome to the second half of our special day after the election uh, episode and group therapy session. Uh, we are joined here for this portion of it um, by Karen Finney, who was a spokesperson for the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign and um, must be getting over some form of flashbacks right now. Are you doing okay there, Karen? I am. You know, I had the experience of working in 2018 in Stacey Abrams' race. So this feels more like that to me than 2016, because I felt prepared that it was not going to be over last night. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you're feeling okay. We also have with us our friend Mika Oyang, who is the uh, runs the National Security Program at the Third Way. Um, uh, how are you, Mika? I'm doing all right. It was. Uh, it's still a very long Tuesday night, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, yes, that's exactly where I am. We have the Nespresso-fueled Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who, if you cut him, he bleeds espresso at this point. Is that true, Ed? I, I bleed the same blood as American patriots. Wow. Well, that's, that's uh, very inspiring. Come back to that. And um, special guest, uh, friend, uh, Mary Trump, uh, who authored a book, um, that uh, many of you have read, I hope, too much and never enough, the story of uh, her family, although it could also have been a headline about last night's election. Um, uh, let's just start with you, Mary. Um, uh, you obviously had a particular perspective watching all this. What, what'd you think? 
Well, it was um, awful. <laughs> I, you know, I I had hoped that uh, for a repudiation of not just Donald, but uh, everything he stood for and his enablers. Um, so, you know, at least hopefully we're going to get rid of him and his executive branch. But that having been said, uh, you know, it's not a surprise that America is a deeply racist country. I fail to anticipate just how committed people are to their racism. And since racism is also a form of cruelty, it seems like what's happened is that people are much more comfortable with other kinds of cruelty. Um, and they were willing to overcome great obstacles to, to vote for four more years of what has been for the most horrific years this country's ever lived through. So it's deeply disappointing. And then the Senate is also pretty uh, hard to take. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, we'll certainly come back to that. Um, uh, Karen, how'd you feel? And did, and, you know, or, or how do you feel right now? So I was not surprised. I didn't buy into most of the polling and felt like it was always going to be at least the end of this week, if not into next week. Um, if for no other reason than because of the way uh, Trump was clearly laying the foundation for uh, legal challenges. So that seemed pretty obvious. And as I mentioned in the opening, I've been through this a few times. <laughs> and so I think that is partially the nature of our elections. I think my main takeaway is, you know, in 2016, I felt like it was about the recent past versus the future. We were trying to make the case that the country had moved on, the, there was a diverse enough electorate that you could uh, win. And Trump understood the um, cultural anxiety, racism, sexism, which we later found out were two of the top indicators of Trump supporters in um, 2016 and that fear of change. And I think what we're seeing is that yet again, I think, look, I believe ultimately Joe Biden's going to win, but again, I think it shows us we are a very divided country and we are divided among multiple fault lines. Um, and, you know, whoever, you know, assuming Biden wins, he's gonna have a lot of work to do around that because our, we're, you know, people are not comfortable with the way things are shifting. Mika, are you comfortable with the way things are shifting? <laughs> No, um, but I do think Karen's right. Things are really shifting. Um, and in one of the ways in which things are shifting is the ways in which our elections are administered. And so one of the big things I think we need to rethink as a country is actually election night coverage. Um, because this election in 2018, in both cases, we went to bed that night with a sense of as Democrats, things being terrible and woe is me. And I think we all have a little Charlie Brown in us of like expecting things to be snatched away. Um, and over time, those results wound up being much better for us than it looked on first blush. And I think that Biden is likely to win this election, just given which votes are outstanding and what's going to happen. But the roller coaster, the emotional roller coaster of who's up, who's down, which counties are reporting, and the sort of breathless coverage of the results as they are counted, um, I don't think actually does us any favors. And you kind of have to wonder, like, why do we make this into such a spectacle? Because then we are trying to speculate about what the country feels on incomplete evidence, which allows everyone to bring out their worst anxieties or confirm their priors. Um, which may or may not be true by the time we actually look at every vote that's cast and run the analysis. And I, and so I am trying really hard to be able to hold myself in a space of ambiguity, um, which is not easy um, to see what the final results are here. Have you tried like an isolation tank? <laughs> I mean, since March, I've basically been in isolation in my apartment <laughs> anyway. Thank you, coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's been true for all of us. Uh, Ed, you had a piece, you know, within moments of the first election results appearing, saying a bitter U.S. election that resolves little. Uh, and the subhead in the piece was whatever the result, America's divisions will make governing very hard. Of course, this in the Financial Times seems like that governing is going to be very hard part is a story nobody really wants to talk about right now. Um, uh is that your main takeaway? No, I mean, I, I share that. I, I 
wish that the FT had given me a sort of a space of ambiguity <laughs> that, that <laughs> a bit longer than that deadline. Um, I, I wouldn't sort of drastically change those conclusions. The fact that we're probably going to have divided government is immensely frustrating. Um, you know, as you wrote in your piece of the Daily Beast, that the, the McConnells and others and the Lindsey Grahams, you know, have come out victorious from last night. Um, Trump's greatest enablers have not been punished. They've not suffered at the polls. And in all likelihood, um, when Biden takes the oath of office, it will be facing a 51 or 52 uh, majority Republican Senate. And that's going to make his task of governing really much, much harder. Um, just to pick up on what, what everyone else has said, we might end up atmospherically with slightly better results than, particularly in the popular vote, um, than uh, we were expecting at the sort of depths of last night, at the Florida depths of last night. And so we could get Biden sort of say 5 million votes ahead, which will feel good, but this will still not be seen as a, as a resounding mandate for Biden or a resounding defeat of Trump. And I think Trumpism is going to live on I think a sort of irredentist Republican approach that Obama suffered from under McConnell again um, is going to be the immediate situation that Biden's going to inherit. Um, and that I think that that's going to cause all kinds of frustrations very early on. There's not going to be, there's not going to be a honeymoon. There's going to be a great deal of leeway on foreign policy. And I'm sure Biden will put that to good use. And that will be immediately a very, very different and welcome distinction from the Trump era. But at home, it's going to be much, much, much more of a grind, which um, is not something we were hoping for. You know, I do want to commend you, Ed, because last night in the midst of the heat of this, um, you tweeted out something using the term cephalogical. Which was the, and you were the only person I believe who's ever used the term on Twitter, and you should get some kind of a Twitter award for that. This this was this was after the eleventh Nespresso. Oh, <laughs> See, that's what happens with you after eleven Nespresso. Um, well, I'm glad because now I know what cephalogical means, and I'm going to use it all the time, but not in this next question here for Mary. Um, well, maybe I could. Uh, you know, in the last uh, half hour, I, I, I raised the point that, you know, the good news from this election is that Joe Biden is going to come out of it probably having won more popular votes than anybody in American history. The bad news of this election is that Donald Trump is going to come out of it with the second most popular votes of anybody in American history. Uh, even more probably than Barack Obama, who held the, the, the prior total on this kind of thing. Um, and you, in your earlier answer, brought up you know, a reason for that that nobody wants to talk about. I've talked to some sort of mainstream Republicans, and they're like, well, you know, Trump, Trump will be gone, and we're going to have to figure out how he connected with the people. Well, how he connected with the people was racism, hate, fear-mongering, really awful stuff. And, and that's where those votes come from. And, you know, how do you, I mean, you're a, a psychotherapist. How do you like look at the psychology of the United States right now when you see that? This is a direct result of never holding our corrupt leaders accountable. And it goes all the way back to Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis on down. Um, so we get inured to uh, bad behavior at the highest levels of government. And we allow people who should be in the Hague to um, be rehabilitated. So, you know, it is not surprising that a country that's never hold, held people accountable got somebody like Donald in uh, the Oval Office who himself has never been held accountable for anything. Um, you know, one of the things that, that is so devastating about this result, um, even though in the end it's a good result, if Biden gets in, is that, um, you know, it's really hard to feel so much anger and despair um, that people are so willing to be racist and cruel. Um, and I was, I had hoped that last night's results would uh, mitigate that because it would be an overwhelming Biden victory. 
Uh, and now those feelings are just exacerbated because it is so close. And it is, I mean, great that turnout was so high, but as you say, um, it just showed us that there are, we literally, half of this country literally is just very comfortable with their blatant racism. And you're right, it's not, this is not going away. This, this doesn't go away until we teach ourselves uh, American history and learn, um, you know, why we are where we are. But I think, can I offer, David, I apologize. Of course. Um, because no, no. I think there's another di dimension to this, and it's based on some um, research that I did during the election, looking at how racism played as, a, as an issue. And for white suburban voters, for most white people in this country, and I think this was part of the conversation we were having in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. If you don't experience racism directly every day in your daily life, you don't know what it is. You can look at the George Floyd video and know that that is horrible, but you don't, you're not necessarily aware of all the kinds of things that if you're a person of color, you deal with all the time. And what we found in some of this research was we had to give people very specific examples. Like they didn't really believe systemic racism because we have this belief about who we are, I think as a country. And so I think the other side of this is, I think there are a lot of Americans who don't realize how bad it is and what it is. Because again, if it's not in your daily life experience, if you don't have friends who are people of color who will are comfortable saying to you, hey, this thing that just happened to me was racist, it's just not, I just, it, it's not tangible to people. And then the second thing I would add is the other dynamic that I think we can't ignore is sexism. Because I think Trump, you know, this toxic masculinity that, and this type of masculinity that he um, represents, uh, I think is, it's part of why he did well among African-American men. I mean, he improved his numbers from, uh, by five percentage points. Um, and, and I, so, and I think we, you know, part of this change that we are going through is, and then, you know, one of the things I think putting Kamala on the ticket, which I think was a brilliant move, but it changes the way we think about women in power. And that is still something that we are as a country grappling with. If you look at who the CEOs are and who's running newsrooms and who's, you know, women are still, um, very much behind and we've made great gains. But I think sexism and the idea of women in power is definitely still part of it. And I think Trump knows how to play to that in, in people. Yeah. yeah, I really agree with Karen on that. And I, but in uh, to try to be a little bit generous to the people who came out for Trump, because I don't think they wake up thinking I'm going to be, a you know, engaged in toxic masculinity. Um, I think that there is an unapologetic chauvinism to Trump's appeal that says to, I think, large parts of America that are feeling really down and out and really left behind, here's something that can make you feel rah-rah and sort of addresses that insecurity. And one of the things that I'm really struck by in the results is the extent to which Trump has increased his margins in rural areas. He managed to find new voters and bring people out of the woodwork who weren't engaged in politics before. And I think that's a real surprise and a thing that people are going to have to contend with. But this unapologetic chauvinism is something that he takes with him, not just into domestic politics, but out into the international sphere where he just says stuff. And even if it's wrong, he doesn't apologize for it. And I think for some people who are tired of apologizing for things, that's appealing. And fair or not, there, there's got to be a reason why they're voting for him and not just that they hate women or black people, because I don't think they would conceive of themselves that way. You know, it's very interesting. And I think people should take your three answers there together, because there were a lot of weird results in this, you know, how badly Biden did with Latin or Latinos in, 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 in Florida. Uh, but then if you look at it and you look at the group he did well with, I mean, how well he did with them, you, you look at who he did well with, which was Cuban Americans, they have a very strained relationship with other Latins as well. Uh, he also did a little better with white women. Uh, we thought that was going to be an area where he was going to fall back. He did better. And this number with uh, African-American men is kind of an exceptional number. I think he, he, he 
he, I mean, Biden had 80% support, but that's down from, I think, 96% that, 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 that Obama had. Um, let me shift the discussion just a little bit here, um, Ed. Uh, the, you know, the rest of the world, I, w- I was looking at some foreign headlines of this and, you know, I saw a French headline that roughly translated at, you know, as America is broken. Um, and, you know, I think there was a hope on the part of a bunch of American allies that there'd be an election. Donald Trump would be repudiated. Uh, Joe Biden, who is like the most normal of sort of traditional American politicians you could imagine, would become president. And people would just say, OK, we're just going to hit reset and we're going to go back. But the, 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 the is the world, you know, paying close enough attention that they're getting this message that there's the, the, the problems, the fractures in American society that caused Trump are here to stay? Uh, you know, I think most of the world, I mean, if you, you exclude the Victor Orbans and the Rodrigo Dutertes and the Bolsonaros and the Putins, most of the world and the whole of the West pretty much was hoping for catharsis. And catharsis meant, but if not a landslide, then something the equivalent of in today's, what you can define as a landslide in today's very polarized age. And we haven't got that. And I think there is therefore, you know, a realization that ought to have been there earlier, that there are structural problems here with American democracy. There is a sort of massive affirmative action program for small, very Christian, rural and white states that, you know, I liken to an appendix that sort of hemorrhages a little bit worse with each election, Um, but which, about which, we can do very little um, because it's so hard to amend the constitution, um, uh, let alone get rid of the electoral college. Uh, it's clear that there is no other presidential elected system in the world that isn't done directly. Um, Biden would have won, you know, uh, by midnight last night if there were a simple national vote, you know, it's first person over 50%. Biden would have been the clear. Uh, and more emphatic winner in that kind of system. And we know that there's nothing America can really do about it. So I think there is a sort of long-term tutorial being conducted, um, not just around the world, but in America as well, about the sort of intractability of the rules of the game, which increase, get worse a little bit more with each election. I should sort of add to that, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of it, but when it comes to drawing the boundaries for the 2020s, um, Tuesday night was not a good night for Democrats. Um, Republicans retain control of most legislatures and will therefore uh, continue to draw maps, particularly with this Supreme Court, which seems to think you can draw as absurd pretzel-shaped districts as you'd like, and that's your business. Um, we, 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 We see no evil, we hear no evil. Um, so, you know, I, I guess the world is sort of paying attention to that, but it's going to be more relieved than we are because the president has most freedom on foreign policy and national security. And so we will feel this change of presidency more in the world, perhaps than we will in America. Oh, interesting conclusion. We've got about 10 minutes to go here. So I'd like, you know, maybe two minute answer from each of you to these, these this next final round of questions. Um, Mary, uh, one of the things you've talked about, written about, um, uh, is, you know, how does Donald Trump react to losing? Now, at some, you know, he's going to fight this and there's going to be a lawsuit in Nevada, lawsuit in wherever Michigan, you know, you know, contested in Wisconsin at a certain point, the penny's going to drop, you know, it means he's, he's not going to, he's, he's probably not going to win this. I mean, you may, I don't, I don't want to rule that out because that's the kind of thing that happens these days, but let's assume he doesn't. Mm-hmm. How, what's the last two and a half months of Donald Trump as president like? Oh, it's going to be a smash and grab. Um, you know, assuming of course that he doesn't, uh, continue dragging it out in the courts, you know, that's up to the courts. Hopefully these things will be decided decisively and quickly as they should be. Uh, cause what's more important than this, um, 
And I mean, by quickly, I mean, after all the votes are counted and then they can decide it. Uh, so, you know, we're going to see um, him. And honestly, I, I think if indeed the Republicans maintain control of the Senate, that's going to make his loss even worse for him. Because it that will also be a wound. Like, how come they didn't go down if he's going down? Know what I mean? So um, he's not going to handle that well. Um, and I think with people like uh, Mitch McConnell and Bill Barr and Mike Pompeo knowing, well, not Mitch McConnell, because unfortunately he's still going to be probably the majority leader, but you know, knowing that they have 79 days to do their worst, I think we need to be uh, prepared for their worst um, and just hang on to the idea that, it, you know, 79 days can be a really long time to do a lot of damage. But at the end of that, uh, uh, President Biden uh, and Vice President Kamala Harris will undo as much of it as they can, as quickly as they can. Uh, we will start dealing with climate change. We will have a federal policy on how to deal with COVID-19. And there will be a Donald Crimes Commission. I know everybody else is going to call it a Trump Crimes Commission, but I reserve the right to call it a Donald Crimes Commission. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, with some luck, you will move out of the phase of your life where everybody refers to your family's last name and then curses and says, you know, fuck Trump and all this. Yeah, and I'm going to have to change my last name. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty <laughs> clear on that. That's okay. Well, um, that you know that is a that is some uh, some of the upside here, you know. Um, Karen, one of the things that I made the mistake of doing in my bleariness at five a.m. was saying, you know, if Donald Trump is the worst president in our history and he's a traitor and he's corrupt and you know, he's trying to commit you know serial crimes throughout his presidency, um, and the Democrats can't, and and the Republicans enable that, and the Democrats. Mm -hmm may eke out the presidency or may not, but 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 actually lose lose seats in the House, don't gain ground in the Senate. Did the Democrats do anything wrong? And immediately I got you know a thousand tweets saying, how dare you, it's the racism, you know, you know, you're it's blame the other guy, they're stupid, they're evil. Democrats don't do any why why blame us? And, you know, I'm like, OK, I, all those things are true. I, I, I didn't say they didn't exist. But it seems to me, may, you know, nobody read where we were going with this properly. So somebody must have made a mistake. It, or, I mean, maybe we're not ready to say this, but are, are you? I think, look, I think we're going to learn a lot more as the numbers are counted and we learn more data. I certainly think after every election, it's important to take a look, even if you win, and say what worked and what didn't. Um, I have long believed, you know, I was at the DNC when Howard Dean was the chair, and he had the 50-state strategy. And I have long believed, and that was dismantled, unfortunately, under President Obama. And that, I believe that's part of why we lose. Because if we don't stay connected and have ways to communicate with people on a regular basis about who we are, what our values are as Democrats, what we stand for and what we're fighting for, we can't expect them to just figure it out in the last two months of an election. So that would be my criticism. I don't, and I don't know enough yet in the sort of, you know, aftermath, um, how, you know, where the fault lines may have been, but I certainly think as a party, this is a structural problem that we have. Um, I would agree with Karen on that. You know, I think one of the challenges that Democrats have had in this is that over and over again, we saw that people thought the economy was the most important message. Look, I'm a foreign policy person. I'm not an economic policy person. But um, it's very clear that the Republicans were successful at getting at defining the Democrats as potentially socialist. And no matter how many times Joe Biden said, no, I'm not, I think it wasn't clear what the economic message from the party was or is going forward. So if the Republicans are saying, I'm a socialist, you're a socialist, and Biden says, I'm not a socialist, okay, well, then what are you going to do? If Democrats don't have a clear answer on what they're doing to make people's lives better, then the critique can stick. And I think that there are elements of the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders being one, 
who are examples of what you could point to and say, but that is socialism. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. He's very proud to be one. Um, but I think Democrats need to have a way of talking about how they intend to make Americans' lives better that is clear and coherent. And I'm the wrong person to ask what that policy should be. Um, but I couldn't articulate one. And I sit in those meetings all the time. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I think the policies are good. What I have found in research is that we're not doing a good enough job communicating them. Like when people know what's in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, they're thrilled. They just don't know that Democrats have been fighting for that. That's a problem. That's yeah, a no, I, I, I agree, by the way. And one of the things I was getting at was I felt the Democrats ran a very kind of conservative campaign allowing Donald Trump to make mistakes. And, you know, following that old, you know, uh, saw that if you know your opponent is self-destructing let him do it uh, well not only was he not self-destructing but the affirmative case was not made uh particularly at the state by state level as as i think it it needed to be um ed this last question this is the softest of all the softball questions that that i've got here but one of the things that's interesting to me is that in the course of today as it became more likely that Joe Biden was going to eke out a victory. Um, and we've overused the term eke today, by the way. I think we're going to have to sort of set that aside. But but um, is that because of the circumstances, we've neglected this kind of gigantic story, which is that Kamala Harris is going to be, you know, vice president to me, it's a big deal. Can I add to the word eek? Um, uh, in terms of banning New York Times favorite words, uh, yeah. riven, riven should just be purged from the vocabulary, from Webster's, from OED. Uh, barreling, you know, when Trump or Biden or anyone else goes anywhere, they, they're not always barreling. Hurricanes aren't always barreling. Um, and dueling, they're not dueling. Uh, anyway, sorry, those are my pedantic. No, no, that's true. And I'm going to say cephalogical. But, exactly. uh, but uh, can be banned, but not because of overuse. No, that's, sure. that's, that's true. Uh, although, although any use is overuse. Let's any, be any clear use. about that. Yeah, but, yes. but, but you just heard in my voice, I get very emotional that when I think about Kamala Harris becoming yeah. vice president. Sorry, I, 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 end of pedantry. Um, no, it's an extraordinary uh, moment. And you're right, we've overlooked it. Or we have been overlooking it um, because of all the other drama and uncertainty going on. But the overwhelming likelihood is that we're going to get the first female and non-white female, and not just non-white, but mixed race um, as vice president. And I would imagine as automatic favorite to be the next Democratic nominee. I mean, I know the life is more complicated than that, but it is an extraordinary moment, 233 years into the Republic, that, that we are finally crossing this bridge. And I think that's a, a very strong silver lining to all of the dark sort of side of, of this election. And uh, you're right, we shouldn't, we shouldn't overlook it. I mean, it changes for the history of black women in this country. I mean, I think about, you know, my grandmother on my father's side who couldn't vote two years before I was born. So that's our, I mean, if you think about our history, um, what I have said is that, you know, this is a new chapter of the history of black women in America, win or lose, quite frankly. Kamala has already done that for us. And what that what's in that chapter is what we're about to find out. Well, and also the, all of us who were Hillary supporters who were deeply scarred by the outcome there and who recognized that one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons Hillary Clinton didn't win was sexism. And that this is a country that was willing to elect a black man president long before it is willing to elevate a woman to that kind of a role. And, and you know, it's just, it's just incredibly powerful that we can cross that bridge theoretically, in a couple of months. Anyway, we have run we have run through our time here with these excellent, excellent uh, guests, uh, and I think gained a lot of insight that I have not gained uh, watching MSNBC and CNN nonstop for the past 20, 24 hours. 
Um, and so for that, I, I want to thank you all. I want to thank you, uh, Mika. I want to thank you, Karen. I want to thank you, Mary. I want to thank you, Ed. I uh, hope you'll all be back soon. Hope this works out in a good way and that the country does not come apart at the seams um, and that perhaps we can talk about things in a couple of weeks or months like what's the agenda for a new president? What can we fix? What can we do right? Um, and, 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 you know, uh, perhaps after uh, at least I've had a little more sleep. Uh, onward and upward. Stay healthy, everybody. Thanks very much.